this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode four of the DNA season, Just Science interviews Dr. Barbara Ray Venter, genetic genealogist and volunteer search angel with DNAadoption.org about investigative genetic genealogy and its use in forensic science. From computer programmer to patent attorney, Dr. Ray Venter's career has taken many unexpected turns, but no one could have predicted the impact she would have in retirement. In 2017, she was instrumental in identifying the Golden State Killer. Before that, she was asked to identify a woman who had been abducted as a child using her investigative genetic genealogy expertise. Listen along as she discusses the techniques used for creating family trees and the resolution of her first cold case. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I am John Morgan, your host. I'm with the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice, and we're very grateful to NIJ for the funding of FTCOE and this podcast episode. Uh, the FTCU is operated by RTI International. Today, our guest is Dr. Barbara Ray Venter, who has a PhD from UC San Diego and is a genetic genealogist and volunteer search angel with DNAadoption.com. She's helped many adopted people find their genetic parents and has now actually, through uh, her work with DNAadoption.com, extended that to be helping in very particular kinds of criminal cases. First, starting with the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department, uh, Crimes Against Children detail, and also uh, now working nationally. And uh, Barbara tells me she's actually been in our neck of the woods in, in North Carolina on a case recently. So we'll, we'll definitely get to that. Welcome to Just Science, Barbara. Well, thank you. Let's talk about kind of what it, exactly you do, because this is an interesting thing, a genetic genealogist. Now, those are two very similar words, but describing two very, very different things. I happen to be a, a huge fan of genealogy. Well, as it happens, here in Baltimore, my great-great-grandfather was the first relative we ever knew. We can't date back further than him. You probably could help me do so. Uh, oh, but, he was adopted? Well, we don't know where he came from. Ah, okay. uh, he was in the 1810 census and living just a couple of blocks from where we're sitting, actually. Oh, okay. But we, we never really found out where David Morgan was his name, uh, came from. But so that's, what, that's a genealogist, and of course everybody in forensic science knows a geneticist. So how, what is a genetic genealogist? Well, we're actually now calling ourselves investigative genetic genealogists. Okay. So genetic genealogy is basically the application of DNA to traditional genealogy research. So maybe you're trying to confirm a paper trail, or maybe you want to add to your paper trail. Um, or even perhaps refute some information that's in there. You maybe think something is wrong. This is a way to, to test it. The investigative genealogy or genetic genealogy is then taking that a step further and using that in, in a situation where you're trying to identify maybe an unidentified person, uh, such as a crime victim, or maybe a suspect in a criminal case. I was wondering, did you come at it because of your interest in genealogy or your interest in, in genetics? 
or just your interest in people? I mean, how did, how did you get into this particular field? Because it's obviously a very new thing to be able to apply the, the genetic tools. I've just kind of ended up doing this. I mean, it, it was a hobby. So I was, I was a patent attorney. So I was patenting biotech inventions. So my PhD is in biology. And so I was then doing uh, cancer research. I was a postdoctoral fellow at Roswell Park in Buffalo. And then from there, I was an assistant professor at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. And that was when I then decided that I wanted to go to law school. But at the time, I was actually more interested in doing medical ethics. And then when I was interviewing for jobs, people would look at my resume and they'd go, well, you should be a patent attorney because you've got all the science background. Um, and this was the very beginning of the biotech era. And so at the time, people who were trying to do patents on biotech inventions were all chemists. And chemists and biologists don't think the same way. So if you're thinking about a new and spiffy compound, if you're a chemist, new and spiffy means a compound that nobody has ever made before. Right. For a biologist, what you were trying to do is make something as similar as possible to what occurred in nature, um, whether it was by purification or making it recombinantly or doing something like that. So very, very different mindset. And of course, then we ran into problems because all the examiners in the patent office who were examining biotech inventions were also chemists. And right. so you're trying to convince these chemists that this growth hormone, let's say, or insulin that you're trying to patent, that it's somehow different from what occurs in nature in order for you to get a patent. And so the big one at the time, I think, was factor eight, where, of course, people were concerned about HIV. And so if you were to purify it or you were to make it recombinantly, you weren't going to have to worry about the HIV contamination, particularly if you did it recombinantly. Sure. And so then you had to convince these chemists who were examiners <laughs> that that was something new and spiffy that was now worth a patent. So it was an interesting time. Sure. Well, they were very fortunate to get you, obviously. You have an, an, kind of an interesting, kind of an eclectic background. I, I love that. <laughs> so what is DNAadoption.com? What are they trying to do? What, what is a typical person who is helped by DNAadoption.com? It's actually .org, not .com. Well, they used to use .com. They changed it maybe about a year ago. Okay. So you might have found it on an old website or something. The typical person is somebody who's either looking for their birth parents or maybe their birth grandparents. Mm -hmm. You know, they've tested and they really are not sure what the heck to do with all of this information that they've just gotten when they get their results back. And so what we do is we then teach them how to use that information to then identify their birth relatives. And of course, all of those uh, things, there must be very emotionally fraught kind of, kind of issues that come up in, in there. Just, uh, and it must be, it's difficult to, to navigate those kinds of, those kinds of problems. And, um, uh, any, and again, having, having done some genealogy, it's, you almost always come up with some dead ends you don't expect, and most of those involve some things that happen personally among people that they would rather have kind of buried away. You uncover a lot of secrets. Yes. That's what you end up doing. Mm -hmm. um, and so then the question is what you do with what you've discovered. I counsel people who you know, discover that, say, that their great aunt, who's now in her 80s, must have had a child out of wedlock, because they've just matched with somebody who's the only potential person who could be their parent is their great aunt, that they might want to keep that to themselves. Right. Um, so it, you know, it's, there, there are there are some very interesting ethical issues that come up from the information that people are discovering. We have a what we call a DNA special interest group or a DIG, as part of our uh, genealogy society in Monterey. And there's a woman uh, who called me. She's one of our, our members. She called me and she said, I, I've 
gotten these really strange results on Ancestry. Can you take a look at them? And she didn't know how to look up the amount of matching DNA because Ancestry kind of hides it under a little dot thing and you have to click on the right place to see how much matching DNA there is. Sure. So all it was telling her was that she had a very close match. And there were two people with close matches, with both with the same surname. And so I take one look at it, and we've got a parent-child and a half-sibling. So I said to her, well, this looks like it's your father. Are you adopted? And she goes, no, I'm not adopted, and I've never been pregnant. So suddenly she's discovering that she's not who she thinks she is. Right. Um, that her mother must have had an affair. And she said, you know, one of the reasons that she had taken the test was because she's got red hair. Nobody else in the family has red hair. Right. And so she had always felt like something was off. But she's, you know, decided that she doesn't want to discuss this with her mother. Um, yeah. She feels it would be upsetting. And so, yeah. There's actually a book somewhat similar, The Stranger in My Genes. Mm -hmm. And he, he went through the same thing. He tested, uh, sort of, there's a long story associated with why he tested, but bottom line was he discovered that his father wasn't who he was supposed to be. In his case, he did talk to his mother, who apparently very calmly admitted that, yes, she'd had a, an affair and told him who it was. So, okay. Yeah. Fair <laughs> so. enough. Yeah, at some point, it's life. Um, it's a sad thing, but it's also one of those things, as you get older, you, you're like, okay. I've seen a lot uh, over the years. Well, the more, the more difficult one, of course, is people who were either sperm or egg donors, because sure. those people were guaranteed anonymity. And so, you know, there were guys who would say were med students who made a lot of donations, and suddenly they've got, you know, like 50 kids. I yeah. Had. <laughs> yeah, I saw there was actually an article recently where I, I looked that up, and there was somebody who had an enormous number. There's actually a little club that they have of all of the offspring. Let's delve into some of the genetic associations that you're talking about. A lot of the Ancestry websites, and, and uh, now you have 23andMe and other kinds of groups that are giving people some genetic testing. A lot of those are based on SNP testing. Correct. And there is some controversy about the accuracy of those tests for some applications. Like, for example, are they really going to be as strong as they need to be? There was a recent case where a couple of twin sisters had sent in to one of the sites, and I don't remember which one. That's not important. And they had actually gotten different results about their ethnic makeup, even though they were shown to be twins. And so how do you kind of tease out what kinds of information are you looking for in particular in the genetic information that comes into you? So we're talking about unknown parentage cases? I mean, and I group into unknown parentage, actually, the, the forensic cases as well. Sure. Because basically that's what they are. It's the same technique for all of them. So, the, well, the very first thing I actually do is look at what we call the admixture or the ethnic background because that can give you a lot of information. It is going to vary from uh, one site to the next. So if, if it's a live person, if they've tested at Ancestry, 23andMe, whatever, um, yeah, they're going to see differences because each company has a different reference population they're using. So there are going to be differences in you know, how accurate their reference population is. You're typically going to get accuracy at the level of a continent. You're not necessarily getting accuracy between, say, France and Germany and so on. But you know, certainly at looking at it at the larger level, then you're probably going to have a fairly accurate idea of where in the world the person has come from, even if you don't know specifically which countries. So the reason I bring it up is I assume that these kinds of considerations are even more important when you're doing criminal cases because you're going to have an unknown person 
trying to kind of tease out some of the ethnicity and phenotypic indicators might be really, really important in a, in a criminal case to trying to identify somebody. It's actually important in any of the cases because when you're building out the trees and you know that you're looking for uh, somebody who's got, say, 50% Ashkenazi and 25% Scandinavian and 25% Sub-Saharan, and you don't have anybody in the trees that you're building out that meets that sort of broad criterion, mm -hmm. then you can guess that something's wrong with the tree that you're building. So that's one of the reasons I actually start with that. Is it helps me figure out which lines to look at, and then also it tells me if maybe something is awry with the tree that I'm working on. So these are interesting logic puzzles in some regard. Oh, yeah. Are there particular techniques or accepted principles with respect to how you do your job? So as a forensic technique, we would expect it to be validated. You have a particular method that you're applying and that kind of thing. How, how would somebody who is an independent expert in investigative genetic genealogy kind of review your work in terms of that kind of thing? Well, the, the ultimate proof is whether or not the person you identify matches with the DNA that's... that's sure. It's an investigative uh, no. tool in the end, right? You're not really... That's yeah. all it is. I'm, I'm not calling the shots. I'm not saying, you know, Joseph D'Angelo is, you know, the, a suspect for the Golden State Killer. I'm saying, I think he's a, a good person for you to go look at. Sure. And so then, you know, law enforcement runs off and does their thing collecting trash DNA, and they're the ones who actually do the confirmation, looking at what they collect from the trash and what they've got in CODIS. Right. So, yeah, I'm just an investigative tool. That's exactly right. Okay, fair enough. You have been doing some work with respect to individuals for some time. For how many years before you were approached by San Bernardino? I started doing genetic genealogy back in trying to help other people back in 2013. Mm -hmm. And I actually started out by taking the class from DNA adoption. Okay. Um, I had, well, I had a very interesting match who was somebody who had just discovered he was not who he thought he was. This is a fellow who is, so he's what we call a genetic cousin. So he's, he lives in England, and he was born during World War II. And so his mother's sister is still alive. And so she had told him that his father was a Canadian airman, which is unfortunate. If it was an American airman, we might actually be able to get some information. The Canadians right. are not very helpful. Okay. They seem helpful otherwise. But <laughs> they, they do, but for whatever reason, in terms of... The military... The uh, military, yeah. yeah there have been many books written on that particular topic. Okay. Um, so in any event, I had no idea how to help him. I know, you know, he's... And of course, he's unfortunately, he's... I'm not matching him on his paternal line. I think I match on his maternal line because I'm matching with uh, his mother's sister. Uh huh. So I'm not helpful in that sense, and, but I wanted to try and help him, you know, figure out who his father must be. And of course, because he's from England, he doesn't get very many matches. I mean, I don't either because I'm an immigrant. I don't mm -hmm. get very ma many matches either because the databases are very heavily North American. So I figured, well, okay, I don't know how to do this, so I'll go take the class. And anybody can take our classes. You don't have to be an adoptee. Sure. It sounds fascinating. I'm, I'm ready oh, to it take it. Fun. Can you take it online? Because I can't oh, get it. Yeah, it is online. Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very good. In fact, I'm in the middle of, of rewriting the lessons for the more advanced version of the class. Okay. So, um, well, the tools keep changing all the time. So we have to well, yeah, I imagine. Stuff. Yeah. So anyway, so that was sort of my impetus to, to get started was trying to help this guy. And ironically, he's the only one I haven't solved yet. Sure. Um, oh, well, we that's just, too bad. We, we just recently got a fairly decent match on my heritage, but up until that point, um, we've just had really, no, not particularly close matches. So we'll see how we do. 
course, this is somebody who's not responding. Was the first case that you were approached with from San Bernardino County? Yeah, yeah it was from uh, Deputy Peter Headley, mm -hmm. and he's in the Crimes Against Children detail in the Sheriff's Department. And so he sent in a webmail just basically asking, you know, the technique that we're teaching to adoptees, could that be used to identify somebody who doesn't know either who she is or where she's from? And she's now 35 years old, and she had absolutely no idea. So this was somebody who had actually been kidnapped when they were a toddler? She was actually, it turns out, only uh, six months old. Wow. And did, was she aware that she had been kidnapped? Because obviously a six-month-old wouldn't necessarily know. No, she did not know until the person who abducted her was arrested so she was estimated to have been born in 1981 based on her dental development. Okay. Uh, it wasn't until 2002 when the guy who abducted her was arrested for murder and finally put in CODIS and then compared against her that she discovered he wasn't her father because he had claimed he was her father. Okay. That's a very, very unusual case. Usually infant abductions are female. It's a just general pattern. In this case, it was mother and daughter. When I identified the mother, we discovered that, in fact, they had not been reported missing because what had happened is this guy, his, his M.O., was to... Uh, tell people that you know they're going to be leaving town. In this particular case, he told relatives that they owed money and so they were going to be leaving. And so, of course, when they disappeared, nobody thought anything of it. I see. And the only reason, actually, that I was able to identify her is because in both her grandmother's obituary and her brother, who uh, died a, a number of years ago, she was listed as being a surviving family member. Oh, that's very sweet and so sad. One of them was something like, 20 years after she'd gone missing. Yeah, and she was, so hope sprang eternal, but and she good was thing somewhere that it did, out there. Right? Oh, you're not kidding. Otherwise, there would have been no reason for me to have had her in, in my tree that I'd built. So the, the officer, the investigator with San Bernardino County had picked up this case. Had the, the case had already been solved because the kidnapper had been put into prison a few years before. So she was aware that she had been abducted for a number of years at that point? Correct, but she had thought that he, he was her father. So it was not until he was arrested, and then they ran his DNA against hers. There was a, a very good detective whose name I'm not going to remember from Contra Costa County, who when he was arrested, she just thought that there was no way that this guy was Lisa's father, and Lisa's not her real name. And so she then suggested that they run CODIS comparing Lisa's DNA against this turkey that they've just arrested. Right. And, of course, it comes back that they're not related. Right. That's then the first time that she even knows that she was abducted. And at that point also then the police are trying to help her find her exactly. relatives. She is a missing person in some regards. Exactly. No, she is. In fact, when, when I identified her mother, they then listed both of them as being missing persons. Uh, the FBI did. So that was the first time they were being, actually being listed as missing persons. So had they been in NamUs? Were they in the national? No, nobody, nobody had reported them as missing. Okay. That's unfortunate, to say the least. The, so the woman that he murdered, they had some kind of a backyard ceremony, so I don't know what to call her. Supposedly getting married, but it was not legal. So in any event, he was living with this woman. Her name was Yoon Son Jun, and he did exactly the same thing with her. When she went missing, they had apparently told friends that they were going to be going out of town, they were going to be visiting friends in, uh, I think it was in Oregon, and so when she disappeared, nobody reported her missing. She had one friend who went back to the police over and over again saying she would never have left town without saying goodbye. I know something has happened to her. So finally, officers went over to the house, and they discover her dismembered body buried in the basement under 200 pounds of kitty litter. 
unusual, but unfortunately, we hear these kinds of stories too often. So in terms of your approach on this case, let's talk about just the, technically how you approached the Lisa Jensen case. So this is the six-month-old, now a growing woman trying to find where she came from. So what are the pieces of information that you collect and analyze in order to be able to help such an individual? Okay, so Lisa is the ultimate difficult case because we knew nothing. We only had her DNA. Normally when you're doing an unknown parentage case, uh, an adoptee, or even when you're you know, dealing with, with criminals, you have some information about location, for example. In her case, her abductor had quite literally been all over the U.S. and up into Quebec, Canada in a year around when it was believed she'd been abducted. So we had no idea whether she was even born in the U.S. or Canada. And so we were actually working with the Mounties trying to figure out if they had any missing kids of you know, the appropriate age. And it didn't help things that it turns out she was half French-Canadian mm. and half Irish. And so she's got all these matches with French Canadians. Right. And so, you know, all the way along, we, we don't know whether she's Canadian or American. And this was all further complicated. The French Canadians tended to have very large families. And what you do is you look for a common ancestor amongst the people who, have, who are matches. And of course, this is now back three years ago when the databases were very much smaller. So ancestry is now up probably around 15 million. Back three years ago, it was only one million. And so her biggest match was somebody who turned out to be, I think, a first cousin twice removed, so not a particularly close match. Right. I think especially within French Canadians, aren't they? They're fairly narrow gene pool, aren't they? Um, yes, that's what I'm it. Yes. <laughs> they do tend to marry their cousins. Yes. In fact, her biggest match, he was... Uh, actually from Rhode Island, but his immediate family was from Quebec. And so when we, when we figured out the common ancestor, she had 14 children, and each of those 14 children also had very large families. We're then trying to figure out how people were related to her. We knew because of you use the, the relationship of the matches to then guess how the parent is going to match. So we called them a second cousin match, or it could be a first cousin twice removed. So the parent of that person would be a first cousin once removed. Right. So we know that we're looking for somebody who's a first cousin once removed to our match. He had 94 first cousins once removed. Wow. Okay. That's a lot, actually. Most I thought I, I'm, I'm trying to think how many. I think I have about 30 first cousins. I thought I was a lot, but 94 is a lot. This is a first cousin once removed. So this well, is another, yeah. another generation. I guess, I guess you could have, yeah, it could be quite a large I think I have there. something like two. Yeah. Um, and just to illustrate the, the difference between knowing something about somebody and not knowing anything, one of her biggest matches was an adoptee. Mm -hmm. His name is Adam Keim, and Adam is always okay about my using his name. He actually also did a little blog on uh, the 23andMe uh, customer page. So Adam was born in San Diego, adopted in San Diego. We've got a birth date for him, and he's got the same matches that Lisa does. He's got the same French-Canadian background, and so for his parent, we knew we were looking for his father. We were also looking for a first cousin once removed. So we've still got our same 94 first cousins once removed, but we know that he was born in San Diego. So we go through all the first cousins once removed. There's one family in Southern California. We tested one of the guys in that family. He's an uncle. So one of his brothers is his father. Huge difference just knowing one little piece of information like that.
Right. To steal it from real estate, location, location, location. If you can find location for whoever it is that you're, that you're looking at, that's huge. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because what you're doing is very different from the tradition as it's been in forensic DNA identification, mm -hmm. where it's just like there's either a direct match or there's not. <laughs> and even doing any kind of familial matching, even within the DNA data, is a push, right? It's, it's been very controversial. You're now taking it many steps actually beyond that because you're looking at the full range of information that could be applied once you have some clues from the genetic side. Exactly. In fact, the, the DNA is actually really only the starting point. You know, as you heard, I use obituaries, huge for Lisa. We use census records. We use Facebook uh, for Adam. Facebook was huge. We were able to figure out that it was his father we were looking for who was related to Lisa because we were able to get his mother's maiden name. And he went on Facebook. Um, he happens to be somebody who's a computer person. Mm -hmm. Went on Facebook. Within a couple of hours, he had his entire maternal line figured out because they were all over Facebook with all kinds of personal information. Sure, <laughs> yeah. Cousins and uncles and aunts and whoever. Um, and from that, we could see quite easily None of them had any kind of French-Canadian background, so he had to be related to Lisa through his father. And it, so his father was French-Canadian, and his father was Lisa's uncle? Is that what I'm getting? No, he's, he's about a sec second cousin once removed or third cousin of Lisa's. But, I see. But it was the same lines. Okay. And so we were looking for the same, for quite a while, the, you know, the lines were intermeshed. Okay. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> no, it's... it's this it's, this it's, is when it helps to have a whiteboard. <laughs> exactly. It's hard to do a whiteboard on a podcast. That's one of the things that we've learned. So um, she was the first case. She was the first case. So the second case was actually one... Um, when I was first doing stuff with perpetrators, I did not want to be identified. So right, my name course. isn't really associated with, with doing this case. So the person who abducted Lisa, after identified who her mother was, uh, she was from Manchester, New Hampshire. And, of course, through doing the identification of her mother, I also had a list of guys that I thought were potentially her father. And it was one of five brothers. Turned out that her grandfather is actually still alive. And so we asked the grandfather, so who was Lisa's father? And he said, Bob Evans. Well, Bob Evans was not a name that I had in my tree. So then the question was, who the heck is Bob Evans? So the detectives in San Bernardino sent a picture of the guy who was her abductor to the grandfather. Yep, that was Bob Evans. Bob Evans had been her abductor. He'd been her mother's living boyfriend. I see. And so this is how I then kind of got dragged into doing forensic stuff because it then turned out that when detectives then looked at where Bob Evans and Denise Baudin, the mother, are living in Manchester, New Hampshire, is about 20 minutes away from a place called Allenstown, New Hampshire. And in 1985 and again in 2000, four bodies were found in a place called Bearbrook Park in Allenstown. The first two were an adult female and a little girl. They'd been dismembered, been wrapped in uh, some kind of plastic and tied with electrical tape. Uh, they were killed using blunt force trauma. This was very similar to the way that Yoon Son Joon was killed, and she had also been wrapped in plastic and tied with electrical tape after she'd been dismembered, and sure. then, of course, put under the kitty litter. So detectives started looking a little more closely at what was going on, and then the other two little girls had both been killed by blunt force trauma, and, of course, they were much tinier, so they were just stuffed into a steel barrel as they were. Detectives, of course, then started looking at this guy, Bob Evans. Turns out he's an electrician, and he worked for the company that actually owned the property 
where these bodies were found. They used steel barrels like the ones that the bodies were found in. And so after connecting all these dots, the New Hampshire State Police then charged Bob Evans with the murder of the Allenstown Four. So not your usual ending to identifying somebody's parents. <laughs> no, no, it wouldn't be. So at that point, of course, we have Bob Evans, and we have no idea who Bob Evans is, because Bob Evans has a list of aliases like this. Because he was an electrician, he did a lot of remodeling type stuff, and while he was remodeling people's homes, he would help himself to their identities. And so he had all of these identities that he had stolen. You know, because whoever's identity he stole, he just you know, took the birthday, took everything. Sure. So we had no idea how old this guy was. He was also somebody who would sort of throw out pieces of truth amongst a whole bunch of lies. And so we didn't even know whether the information we were working with in trying to identify him, whether any of it was even correct. So he had said, said things like that he was born in Wyoming, that he'd lived in Hawaii. We knew he'd lived in California and Texas. So it was going to be a real challenge trying to identify this guy. Well, one of the things that I remembered reading someplace was that California autopsies all of its deceased prisoners. And this guy died in prison in 2010. Mm -hmm. And so I asked the question whether an autopsy had in fact been done, and if so, was there any material left that we could test for DNA? So it turned out there was a blood cut. And so for whatever reason, California was storing its autopsy materials in Nevada. So okay. <laughs> so I know that I'm I sure, don't judge. I'm sure but... there's some logic there somewhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in any event, it took a lot of signatures to get this blood card out of Nevada and to be able to then do DNA testing on it. And so this is actually then the first time I'm actually IDing somebody who was a criminal because I was then able to identify this guy as being Terry Rasmussen. And he was actually not born in Wyoming. He was born in Colorado. His father was born in Wyoming. So we had finally ID'd him and he had a really horrible history. He had done similar, similar torture type stuff to his son than he had, as he had done to Lisa. And so, yeah, it was, it was a very unpleasant Did the son survive? Yeah, in fact, the son is, has just done an interview with, it might be with NPR. He's very concerned that he not grow up like his father. Right, yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's any danger of that. Yeah, I guess a horrible, horrible experience for both uh, him and Lisa, both of them having, having survived it. For whatever reason, he decided not to kill either one of them. Uh, in her case, she, her life was probably saved because they were living in a trailer park in Scotts Valley, which is actually not very far from where I live. It's in uh, Santa Cruz County. Uh -huh. And there was a woman and her husband were visiting. He had some temporary job assignment in the Santa Cruz area. And so they were temporarily living there from San Bernardino. And Lisa became very friendly with this woman. And at some point, he offered her to them. Their daughter was having trouble conceiving. And so he suggested, well, why didn't she and her husband adopt Lisa? And suggested they take her for a trial adoption for three weeks. Well, of course, you know when they got back after three weeks, he was long gone. Right, of course. And changed his name and a few other things. So they probably saved her life. Yeah, indeed. Well. That's extraordinary. I don't even know. There's so many ins and outs to the story. It's, uh, <laughs> I, as I say, you can't make these stories up. <laughs> no, no, you can't. There's so many twists and turns, yeah. And so he, he had at least killed the Allentown Four. Right. He had killed Lisa's mother. Probably. He had killed his uh, last wife or... Right. Yeah. Uh, and maybe some others but, that we don't know. There's actually another one because <laughs> there were just... Continual surprises with this case. So since Denise Bodin is missing, one of the thoughts was that she was the adult female 
that was in the steel barrel. Right. And so the detectives then ran CODIS comparing all of the Allenstown four, and it turns out that the one of the little girls is the killer's daughter. I see. The adult female is not Denise Baudin. There might actually be some cases out there that we don't even know that are linked to this individual. We, we actually have one in Monterey County, which may be his, and then Detective Headley has identified a couple of others which mm -hmm. have similar MO that may be his also. You know, the dismemberment and the wrapping and the tying with electrical tape. And we know that he was all over California, so it's not surprising that these other cases could, could well be his. Sure. So that's quite a first case for you. It was a little different. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and after, after you had gotten into that, I assume that raised some notoriety. Tune in for our next episode as Just Science continues the conversation with Dr. Ray Venter about her role in the Golden State Killer investigation. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.